Now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Ben Woldovsky. Mr. Woldovsky is a senior fellow in research and policy at the Kaufman Foundation and a guest scholar at the Brookings Institution. Previously, he was education editor of US News and World Report, where he was top editor of America's best colleges and America's best graduate schools. Earlier in his career, he was economic policy correspondent for the National Journal, higher education reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, and executive editor of Public Interest. He has written for the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, among other publications. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Ben Woldovsky. Thank you very much for that, uh, that kind introduction. I'm really very happy to be here um, at Zocalo tonight. It's clearly a very uh, sophisticated and intelligent audience. I think you're probably all going to miss glee uh, to be here. So thank you for making that sacrifice. It actually was hard for me when I got the invitation, you know, but I, I decided it would, be, it would be worth coming. And, you know, I sought out a little bit of advice um, as I was trying to figure out, you know, what might get the audience here um, interested, you know, again, being a bookish sort of crowd, and I was told that starting off with cute animals would be a, a can't miss. So these are some monkeys that I came across when I was visiting <laughs> Southeast India, uh, an area near uh, Chennai, it used to be called Madras. And, you know, as you can see, they're pretty adorable. Uh, this is actually taken from the balcony of uh, the guest house where I was staying. Um, I actually took it to send to my kids. I discovered pretty quickly that these cute little guys have a dark side. And it turns out uh, after a day I was warned that if I left my room and I left the doors or the windows open, they will come inside and they will trash the place. So things are not always what they seem. The same is true uh, in many ways. You know, this, um, these monkeys are at the, you're at the edge of this beautiful national park there are also deer running around. There are these magnificent banyan trees everywhere. But you know, it has the feeling of a sort of sleepy, somewhat backward place, at least to my uh, Western eyes. But it turns out this is the campus of an elite engineering university called the Indian Institute of Technology, the IIT in Madras. It's one of a, a chain of these, these uh, schools around India. They're known as the MIT of India. Uh, very hard to get into. Only 2 or 3% of the applicants on this big national exam get in. It turns out that this place is actually uh, very much connected with the whole global network of knowledge and talent mobility that I'm going to be talking about tonight. My first day on campus, I went and, as I usually do when I visit a campus, I went and I spoke with the director, you know, the, basically the president of the campus, just to get to, you know, to pay my respects and, and see what he was up to. So this guy is called M.S. Ananth, and you know, he had just come back from Davos where he is part of a higher education working group that's uh, run by uh, Rick Levin, who's the president of Yale University. So again, these connections that I would not have expected were, uh, were, were very much apparent. And as I wandered around the campus, I went to the recruiting office and I saw that there were, um, I saw that there were posters, you know, sign-up sheets, the way you'd see in an American campus for all these employers coming to campus doing interviews. So Google was there, uh, McKinsey was there, and there was a big poster that especially interested me from a place called KAUST, which is the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. It's a brand new graduate level university in Saudi Arabia, and they were try they're trying to recruit the best students in the world, and so they're coming to India, among other places, to try and get some top Indian students. And these kinds of scenes, as I worked on the book, I guess you've already, I don't need to plug it since you've already, you've already seen it, I'll show it to you again. 
www.greatbrainrace.com. There's a Facebook page, there's Twitter, there's everything, and that's the end of the plug. But as I was working on this book, you know, I came across these kinds of scenes all over the world, things that I, I would not have expected. And you know, when I first started working on this, it really, I had in mind a very different kind of project. You know, as, as you heard, I used to work for US News and World Report, and one of the things we did was to profile colleges around the country, which was always kind of fun. I actually came out here to Caltech one year. Caltech was ranked number one uh, through a complicated screw-up, which I won't get into right now, but it was number one. I was told, okay, Boldovsky, go out there and write about Caltech, and it was great. And I used to write these, I would edit them, and I had this idea, wouldn't it be fun to sort of go around the world looking at the, the best universities in the world, sort of a Cook's tour? Um, and, you know, maybe that would have been a good project, but I realized a couple of months into this, as I was talking to people, I was actually at a conference in Shanghai. There were people from all over the world, and what I sort of came to understand there was that I was missing the more interesting story. And the more interesting story is really this intense uh, competition that's now taking place among universities, the, the real sort of shaking up of the old order, which I think is, uh, is just really beginning to take place. And we don't really know where it's going to go. And what I'm going to try and do uh, tonight uh, is just to give you sort of a taste of, of what I discovered as I was working on the book. And what I'm going to try and do is tell you fairly briefly what higher education globalization is, why I think it's important, uh, why there's some anxieties about it, um, both here and in other countries, and why in the end I think those anxieties are misplaced. And ultimately, uh, I really think it's a great opportunity for, for the United States and for the world, and it's not something that's a threat. I'm going to give you just a very quick overview of the things I'm going to talk about. The first is this immense academic mobility that's now taking place on a level that we've never seen before in the world. Uh, the second, uh, which I just touched on, is this quest everywhere, uh, everywhere from Saudi Arabia to South Korea to, to Western Europe to create universities that are really world-class, that can, can compete with the best. And the third, which is sort of near and dear to my heart, having been in charge of the U.S. News College Guides and dealt with a lot of rankings issues, um, you know, the good and the bad and, and the ugly, Rankings are now a global phenomenon, so I'm going to talk a little bit about what has happened to make rankings, to give rankings such prominence on the, on the global stage. Now, let me talk a little bit about what's happening with mobility. There are now about three million students every, every year who are studying outside their home countries, and that represents a 57% increase in just a decade. Um, and I should say, by the way, those are not study abroad students. I mean, these are students who go for a year or more. So it's not the, you know, three months or semester or even an academic year someplace. It, that would make the numbers even larger. What has happened as this has grown is that it's become a very uh, competitive industry to get students to come and enroll in your universities. Uh, and this is true both at the elite level and at the sort of more mass level. Among elite uh, students, you know, if you're a, a talented uh, graduate student, uh, if you're a postdoc, the world is your oyster. Everybody wants you. There's fierce competition to, to attract these students. And the reason, you know, in the sciences particularly, is the, these form the backbone of the research enterprise everywhere. It's grad students. So people want the best. At the same time, you know, undergraduates are also very important. And I think it's really for two reasons. You know, there's certainly the human capital aspect of wanting to bring, you know, bright students to your universities. Some of them will stay. But, of course, there's also money, you know, uh, in the same sense that, you know, the UCs will uh, bring in out-of-state students, other universities, they pay full freight, typically. The same is true in a place like Australia or Great Britain. So they're an important source of revenues as well. 
Student recruiting has gotten so competitive that some places have resorted to sort of unconventional tactics. Uh, one of my favorite examples came a few years ago in New Zealand, where the, 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 the higher ed sort of promotion authority came up with this viral video, which they released on the internet for a little while. They kind of quickly withdrew it uh, for reasons you'll see. And basically, what this shows is, uh, this is a still from the video. It's, uh, it's a couple over here in the corner, uh, sort of smooching in the corner of the hot tub. And you know, New Zealand, the Asian students are a big target market for them. So they have this couple smooching, and then the camera kind of pulls back, and you see over, I can't point to it without falling over, but the parents are looking on disapprovingly in the corner, and then you see the caption, get further away from your parents. So, uh, as I said, you know, the video itself is a little steamy. I decided not to show it, but um, this gives you a flavor. And uh, it turns out it was very successful because if you look at the recruiting figures over the, the, the previous decade, this is the 10-year growth in the number of foreign students in various countries. And second only to Korea is New Zealand with a 999% growth rate. So I guess this shows you that, that marketing works. But you know, there are different kinds of mobility. I mean, I've talked about student mobility. Uh, there's mobility of faculty, which is, uh, is also beginning to, to change quite a bit. Um, there's also mobility of research itself. You know, uh, the number of scientific collaborations between researchers across national borders has more than doubled in the last 20 years. And I think that's only going to increase. Um, you also have interesting things happening with research. You know, uh, I, I talked to uh, the same guy I mentioned earlier, Rick Levin, the president of Yale, and they are doing collaborations with Chinese universities where they will have some professors uh, fr from Yale, uh, typically they're Chinese Americans, Chinese emigres, they will go back and work with a university that has tremendous, uh, very high quality and very inexpensive lab space, and also has a very significant number of highly trained and inexpensive lab techs. And basically, the Yale professors provide this high-level expertise. They're able to do experiments on a scale and work on a scale and at a cost that they couldn't do in the United States. So sort of using the trade analogy you know, or the economics, they're, they're, both, they're both using their comparative advantage. Uh, and it's really a win-win. Now, I think ultimately, you know, as, as the Chinese get better trained and that, that university system continues to ascend, probably that, that balance will be somewhat different. But for the time being, it works out very well for, for both sides. The other thing I'll just say about mobility of research is that it's interesting. You can actually look and looking at uh, the most frequently cited, you know, the top researchers are much, much more likely to have spent time during their career working outside their home countries. And you, know, you could argue, well, is that causation? Is, is, it, is, that, is that making them better? Or is it just uh, correlation? You know, I'm, I'm not sure, but there's certainly a very clear association between excellence and, and working outside your, your home country. So another kind of mobility, uh, which has been kind of intriguing to me, is basically mobility of campuses themselves. And what I'm thinking about here is what's usually called the, uh, the branch campus or the satellite campus phenomena. And this uh, really has to do with Western campuses setting up outposts, you know, branches in different countries. Usually it's in Asia uh, or the Middle East. That's where there's huge demand for, for Western degrees. And so, you know, you'll have uh, places like, uh, you know, NYU is now creating that. New York University is creating a, a campus in Abu Dhabi in the United, United Arab Emirates. You know, there's a British university, the University of Nottingham, which has a campus in Ningbo in China. There are now 162 of these branch campuses around the world. And again, it's grown very, very quickly. It's something like a... Let me double check. I think it's a 43%, uh, yeah, 43% growth in just three years. Uh, because people want the, this kind of Western education, and I'll show you just a small example. I went to uh, Doha in Qatar, and there's a complex 
on the edge of the city called Education City, and it's just enormous. Uh, it's sort of, it's like one giant construction site. New things are going up all the time, and they're very lavish buildings, you know, they're made of, you know, marble and all the, all the, the best materials. And some of them, like this one, you know, to, to my eyes, looks sort of like a, an ancient temple. I'm not sure what it's modeled on, but you look at this massive doorway, which is, you know, certainly as tall as or, or taller than these high ceilings here, here in this room, and it opens up, and, and three young women come out in black abayas, you know, covering, uh, they're not veiled, but they've got abayas, you know, from head to toe. And uh, at the same time, you, you can't see it in the picture, but there are these banners all over saying, Welcome to Aggieland. And of course, that's what you have at the Texas A&M main campus in College Station in Texas. And in many different ways, they're trying to bring a little, a little taste of Texas to the Middle East. And in fact, on the same campus and, and all over, Education City has um, Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. It has Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism. It has Cornell's Medical School, the Wild School of Medicine, and, uh, and a few others. They have a debate series. Um, you know, one of the things they're doing which we may talk about later, is sort of trying to push the envelope a bit in a society that does not have a really robust tradition of, of free speech and democratic institutions. They have a debate series called the Doha Debates. And so in this building and other buildings, I would see these posters everywhere. That uh, It's kind of an Oxford-style debate. And the, the resolution was, this house uh, believes that Gulf Arabs care more about profits than people. Now, that's not the kind of thing you would see uh, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago before these universities were over there. So that's just another kind of mobility. Um, you know, I've talked about students, I've talked about research, I've talked about these, uh, these branch campuses, and all of this has caused a certain amount of anxiety. Um, one issue is one that's been around for, for some decades, and that's brain drain. Uh, people in the developing world have had a lot of concern about losing their best and brightest to, to the West and not getting them back. And, you know, that's caused, you know, it's caused some concern. In some cases, it's caused sort of countermeasures, which, which I view as very ill-advised. And I'll just give you one example. Another one of the IIT campuses that I visited uh, in, uh, they call it IIT Bombay, it's, it's Mumbai. And uh, the president there a couple of years ago banned students from going overseas for fellowships because some of the kids that I met, you know, they're, they're, in, they're in demand. You know, so one guy... I knew went to the Swiss uh, Federal Research Institute one summer, and then he went to a big investment bank in Hong Kong, another, where he ended up going to work after graduation. So these are elite, elite students, but he wouldn't let them go uh, because, you know, he didn't want to lose, lose the brain power. And, you know, you see sort of conversely, people who, who, um, who have a lot of demand for foreign students coming in are, are worried that they may, uh, they may displace domestic students. Uh, Malaysia has a limit of 5%. The Ministry of Education has imposed on the, the percentage of foreign students who can come into their universities. Um, even in the States, it's rare for it to be so explicit here, but up until about 10 years ago, uh, the University of Tennessee had a quota of 20% in every graduate department uh, for foreign students, which is you know, very problematic for the department chairs if they're trying to recruit you know, the best students. Nationwide, something like, I, I don't have the exact figure at my fingertips, but approximately 63, 64% of engineering PhDs are foreign-born and that's the same across the board in departments like, uh, you know, computer science, you know, economics actually is a very high percentage of foreign-born students. So the, these are very heavily represented in graduate departments. And so placing a restriction like that really makes, makes it hard to, to have a high-quality program. There are these kinds of concerns about, um, about this, this new world of mobility. And I think that this is one of several cases that I'm going to talk about where I think the concerns are, are really misplaced. 
The fundamental thing about mobility is that we're in a much more dynamic world in higher education than we used to be. Uh, it's not static. The old patterns are changing. So, you know, I would say there's no question brain drain is a concern. I met with some Indonesian uh, scholars a couple weeks ago, and it's, it's a real, it's a fact of life for them, and they worry about it. But at the same time, you know, what we're starting to see is, for example, Indians and Chinese who used to come to the West, you know, those who were able to get to the West, would really do their best to stay. And it was, you know, it was a one-way one -way travel whenever they, could, whenever they could manage it. But now, because of thriving economies in China and India, because of their efforts, not only in the business world, but in China, for example, in the academic world, which I'll talk about more, there are many more opportunities for people to come back home. And so you now see more swirling patterns of mobility, where people may, for example, go uh, from the developing world to the, uh, to the developed world um, for one degree, then they may go to a, a second country for a higher degree, then they may go back to their home country where they can work and be closer to family that might work for a multinational. You know, there are just different patterns than we've seen before. Um, you know, people sometimes talk about, uh, rather than brain drain, they now talk about brain circulation, or I've heard the expression brain train, just to capture how this is beginning to change. Um, I'll give you a great example uh, at the faculty level. There's a guy named uh, Chun Fang Shi, born in Malaysia. Um, I think he's ethnically Chinese, born in Malaysia. Uh, excuse me, I, I apologize, Singapore. Uh, he's from Singapore. He goes to Canada for a master's. He goes to Harvard for a PhD. He's a material scientist, becomes very successful, becomes a professor at Brown University, and he's doing great. So he's done this sort of classic, you know, east to west trajectory. But then he gets recruited back to Singapore, which is trying to build up its university system, and he becomes the head of an institute in Singapore. And then he gets promoted, so he's president of the National University of Singapore. So already that's kind of a reversal of what we've, what we've seen. But then I talked about Kaus, this King Abdullah University. They recruited him to Saudi Arabia a couple of years ago when they started up, so he's now the president of Kaus. And you know, I wouldn't say he's typical, but I think he's emblematic of how these possibilities are opening up. Now, the other thing I would say, just briefly, is I mentioned the anxiety about domestic students being crowded out by foreign students. But you know, clearly, we know in this country what a tremendous contribution uh, you know foreign students have made. I mean, just look at Silicon Valley. I mean, the 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 numbers on the percentage of you know entrepreneurial endeavors that have disproportionately been launched by by immigrants, and that's just one of many examples you could give. But uh, I think people tend to be short-sighted about the kind of benefits that that they can get. The surge in student mobility you know, that I've mentioned is, is pretty remarkable. But you could say, well, it's a lot easier for students or for individual faculty members as well to make these kinds of decisions you know, to go around the world. Um, what's much harder is for institutions themselves, for universities to change. You know, many people would say universities are kind of notoriously change resistant. And what's really remarkable uh, about the, this new global marketplace that's developing is that universities really are making big changes. Um, uh, I think policymakers really want them to change, and I think they're starting to realize themselves that their competition is not just local and regional, um, it's not just national, it's international. And they're, they're beginning to, to try their best to be more competitive. And you know, the underlying reason is, is very simple. I think more and more nations really correctly see that um, great universities are the pathway to innovation and to economic growth. And uh, a quote that I, that I like on this topic is from a book that came out a couple of years ago, The Race Between Education and Technology. And one of the key takeaway points here uh, is, I'm quoting, human capital embodied in one's people is the most fundamental part of the wealth of nations. So everybody, everybody now understands this, that you have to 
education really is the key. And you know, it may have become, it's a commonplace now to say this, but it's true. And so countries like China, you know, they don't want to just send students overseas. They're still doing that on a very large scale. They don't want to just host branch campuses on their own soil or partnerships, although they're doing that on a fairly large scale. They want to build their own great universities. And uh, this is true not only in China, uh, South Korea, I mentioned, of course, Saudi Arabia. Many places really feel like this is part of what they need to grow economically. And they're doing this in, in various ways. One of the, the, the things they're doing, of course, is spending money. Um, money is you know, your sort of weapon in this competition. And China has put billions of dollars into creating a fairly small group of universities you know, selected from the, the larger pool that they're really trying to, 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 um, to nurture and to, and to make uh, really players on the world scientific scene in particular. Um, you know, they're actually calling one of these groups, a small group of nine universities, the Chinese Ivy League, which just sort of captures the, the, the image they have of what they want to accomplish. In Saudi Arabia, when King Abdullah started KAUST, he put in $10 billion to get it started, which may, meant that it instantly it was the sixth largest university endowment in the world, just right off the bat. And if it grows, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll end up, and the projections are, it'll end up being much, much greater than that. Um, so people are spending a lot of money. The second thing they're doing is they're recruiting. Uh, because again, if you want to jumpstart your success, you want to just bring the best talent in there. So you know, another thing China has done is they've tried to bring a lot of distinguished professors who have gone overseas uh, to come back to China and to teach in their universities, which are now much more attractive. They can offer them more attractive compensation. You know, as I said, the growth in the country um, has just made it, a, I think, a more attractive proposition for a lot of people. And they call these the sea turtles. Uh, I'm not a Chinese speaker, but I understand that in Chinese, uh, sea turtle is a homonym for somebody who returns, a returnee. And so all these people they're trying to sort of bring back in, and I think they're starting to have some success. You see the same thing in, um, in places like, um, excuse me, uh, South Korea, which is um, spending a lot of money trying to bring in uh, professors from overseas. The National University of Singapore is doing the same thing, and this is one of their tactics. The third thing they're doing is trying to create partnerships. And again, you know, when you don't have as much uh, homegrown talent as you would like, and you're trying to build institutions, Making these alliances can be a very quick way of getting yourself into the big leagues. And probably the best example of this is Singapore. Uh, Singapore is trying to make itself really a global hub of knowledge. And they have brought in, for example, MIT has a presence now uh, at the National University of Singapore. So does the University of Chicago's business school. They have, a, they have created a, a, I don't know if you call it a branch exactly, but they have created a, uh, a presence over there. Um, there's a, a very famous international business school called INSEAD, which was originally started uh, in Fontainebleau, which is outside of about 45 minutes or an hour outside of Paris. They have created a co-equal campus in Singapore where basically you can do your whole, your whole degree there or you can go there and go to France or you can start in France and go there. So they've kind of created this interchangeable uh, degree. And again, that's really done in collaboration with Singapore, which wants to have those kinds of places there. There's all this activity going on, but once again, people are worried about it. So why are they worried? Well, I think the, the easiest way to really sum it up is that you know, in the West in general, and in the United States in particular, there's a real fear that as other countries get stronger and stronger, and as they become more competitive, that we're gonna lose our number one status. Um, you know, when people talk about Chinese universities and other Asian universities in particular, People tend to fret about the, I think, the economic uh, threat and the educational threat posed by places that are 
starting to produce you know, just tons more, uh, tons more students, tons more degrees. The enrollment at Chinese universities in the past decade, I want to make sure, is it, is it a decade or is it two decades? Yes, in one decade, China has quintupled the number of students in its universities. So they're working on, on, on mass entry, they're working on quantity, and they're also working, as I've mentioned, on quality. So there's a lot of concern, you know, that China is, you know, just producing huge numbers of PhDs, for example, in engineering and other fields that we think of as important to competitiveness. And this came up during the last presidential campaign, actually. President Obama, at a campaign stop, talked about this and sort of said, gee, how are we going to stay competitive if, you know, the Chinese and the South Koreans and the Japanese are producing more PhDs in these key fields than we are? So... The, the general concern seems to be, you know, if other people are getting ahead, we must be falling behind. Now, once again, you know, I think it's understandable that, you know, this landscape is changing and that people have, people have concerns. But at the same time, I think that, you know, the fact that we have a more competitive environment is not something that we, we have to be so worried about. Um, yes, we're going to have a run for our money. There's no question. But I think we have every reason to really be energized by this new environment. And the central reason is this. Knowledge, increasing knowledge, is not a zero-sum game. You know, it's not as if there's a finite amount of learning in the world that we all have to compete over and try and get our piece of it. You know, it can expand. Um, it's like I mentioned, the, the global patterns of mobility. Things can change. So if there's more smart people in China with PhDs, that's good for us. It's not bad for us. Uh, like I said, it's not a zero-sum game. And I think that this is something we, we tend to lose sight of, and economists often use the term public good to talk about knowledge. Uh, you know, and the, the notion of a public good is that it's not something that um, it can be shared. You know, it's not something you can contain within national borders. And you know, we, I mean, my foundation, the Kauffman Foundation, is particularly interested in innovation and entrepreneurship and economic growth. So you know, the United States, you know, we're admired by, by Asia in particular for our ability to innovate. And you could certainly imagine, you know, if there's a great new discovery in South Korea, a scientific discovery, well, we could wring our hands about how they're getting ahead of us. But in fact, it's much more likely that, you know, some American innovator, entre entrepreneur is going to get a hold of that and perhaps turn it into some, you know, great new product or service, you know, the next Google. So again, I think we need to think of this in terms of opportunities for us. Now, I've talked about the way in which um, a highly competitive global marketplace has developed. And global education markets, I think, just like financial markets and all kinds of markets, really, they need information in order to function effectively. So it may be inevitable, you know, given that there's all this mobility of students, given that there's this competition, there's this pecking order of world-class universities, everyone wants to rise up, that um, all this, this new world has been accompanied by a proliferation of college rankings, not just at the national level, but at the global level. So there's just been huge growth. Um, I mean, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, I'm not sure, am I, do I have another 10 minutes? I can't, I may have missed, have I missed my warning? Okay, I'm gonna keep going. I just don't wanna overstay my welcome. You know, this actually, for a California audience in particular, you may appreciate this. Well, this is from my hometown of Berkeley, but the first ranking I've been able to find came in 1895 in the University of California yearbook or the annual, yeah, they called it the yearbook, I think. And it's this, uh, it's this wonderful chart, which uh, you see these black and white photos of it's all men, all these young guys doing calisthenics. You know, they're doing like barbell exercises, and they're wearing these great kind of gym outfits. And there's a, there's a chart with three columns. And in the left column, 
they show all the measurements of all the young men of this new university, and it's you know, their, their, uh, their neck measurements and their chest measurements and their thigh measurements. And then next to it, there's a column showing an average of 30,000 young men on the East Coast. These are the blue bloods. So it's Cornell, it's Amherst, and uh, a third college, and they average all their measurements. And they're ahead of the California guys when it starts. But then after three years of doing these exercises and uh, working out in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the healthy air of the Bay Area, then there's, there's a third column showing how they've surpassed the East Coast guys. And this is uh, the first example that I've been able to find of value-added measurement in universities, which is now a hot topic. So it actually goes back quite a long way. And I, I won't rehearse the history over the next hundred years, but basically it was really, there were a number of different kinds of rankings, but it was in 1983 that contemporary rankings really took off. Uh, that was the year that U.S. News and World Report uh, started doing its college rankings, which began actually really as a very simple poll of college presidents. It was sort of a, a fairly typical news magazine parlor game. You know, let's ask a bunch of presidents who's the best. That's what they did. It quickly became very popular. Uh, the presidents got very angry about it. And, uh, you know, there were lots of meetings. This is way before my time, you know, but there were, there were angry meetings. And ultimately, U.S. News said, well, we're not going to stop doing it, but we'll make it more sophisticated. So they started collecting a lot of data on things like graduation rates, entering scores of freshmen, class size, spending on research, a bunch of criteria. They kind of crunched it all together and they came up with rankings. And these become hugely popular, hugely controversial, as you know, and really hugely imitated internationally. And many people are not aware of just how many countries now have rankings at a national level. It's more than 40. And some of them are places you might expect, you know, in Canada, uh, or in Italy, where journalists have done them, but also Peru now has college rankings. Kazakhstan has college rankings. You know, everybody's trying to figure out, you know, who's up and who's down within their own country. Now, coming back to the whole sort of global theme I've been talking about, there are now global college rankings. And these began about uh, eight years ago. The first year was, um, I'm going to double check the year, 2003, seven years ago, at a Chinese university, Shanghai Jiao Tong University. And this was really part and parcel of China's efforts to, you know, to really revamp its university system, as I've said. And you know, if you're going to try and make improvement on a large scale, I think their feeling was, you've got to know where you're starting. You, know, you need some kind of a benchmark. So they created these rankings, the pretty heavily science-oriented rankings, but with very transparent criteria. You can go to their website. You can see the whole thing. And the following year, um, a British publication, kind of like our Chronicle of Higher Education, it's called Times Higher Education. It used to have the word supplement on the end, and they, they changed the name. But they created their own global rankings, a very different methodology, very heavily based on surveys uh, of, of universities and em employers around the world, as well as some more hard data. And these two really became hugely popular, and they were, they were popular among policymakers, but also, especially the British ranking, among students. They were a consumer ranking. And um, I'll just show you quickly how these look now. You can, see, um, you can see the top 10 in the most recent ranking year. You can all go ahead and look for your, your alma maters. Um, you know, you'll see that it, it, at this level, they're actually pretty similar. You know, I can't help notice that there's several British universities that somehow show up in the British rankings, the Imperial College London, that, that don't make it into the Shanghai rankings. But what I think is going to happen, I mean, my prediction is, because of everything I've been telling you about, that in 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years, they're going to look quite different. Uh, because we, we are beginning to see, see a shaking up of the old order. Um, now, as you can imagine, you know, um, rankings, you know, like some of the other developments I've talked about, have been very controversial. The global rankings just as much, if not more so, than the U.S. news rankings. Uh, I actually had a wonderful experience 
um, when I was first starting on the book, I was in Shanghai. I think I mentioned this great conference I went to. And uh, the, a French academic, um, Monique Cantos-Sperber, who's a philosopher, and she's the president of an elite uh, university called uh, the École Normale Supérieure in Paris. It's uh, very hard to get into, very well regarded. She came all the way to Shanghai to give an impassioned, a long impassioned speech with lots and lots of detail about how terrible the Shanghai rankings were, how completely unfair they are to her institution, and that they really should just, you know, get rid of them or completely redo them because they're terrible. And of course, this was great for me because I used to be on the receiving end of this stuff when I was at US News, but I was just on the sidelines watching exactly, I mean, something very similar play out with, you know, you could fill in the blanks, but different specifics. So, you know, the, the basic wrap on these rankings, you know, is that they, 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 they measure the wrong things, they create perverse incentives, uh, you know, get a lot of Nobel winners on your faculty, even if their research was 30 years ago and they don't teach undergraduates, you know, because those things get, get you points in the Shanghai rankings. Um, and, you know, the, what it really boils down to is critics feel that these rankings just don't tell you how effective universities are, especially when it comes to uh, teaching and learning at the undergraduate level. And, um, you know, if you really hate global rankings, which we, France in particular has a thing about rankings, they really don't like them, uh, one of the things that's also happening is people are going out and making their own. So another one of the French, the elite schools, they call them the, uh, the Grands Écoles, an engineering school in Paris, went ahead and did its own ranking with, uh, I think, somewhat predictable results. This is a headline from one of the higher education publications on the web. And uh, here you go. You'll see the headline is, French do well in French world rankings. So I guess that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a great tautology. Um, and uh, you, know, you are seeing more and more people are trying different approaches. So once again, you know, this is an area where I think there's a lot of worry about rankings. Uh, and I completely agree. I mean, as with the US News rankings, rankings have lots of flaws. Rankings are not perfect. Um, but I think nevertheless, I think they can be very helpful. Uh, I think they already are, and they have the potential to be even more helpful to students, uh, to universities, to government policymakers, try, excuse me, government policymakers trying to figure out which universities are, are doing better. Um, I also think that practically speaking, rankings are here to stay. I mean, they're not going to go away. So the real challenge is how to make rankings better. Uh, and I think the good news is that is really starting to happen. Um, the, uh, a, a big international organization, the OECD, the Organization for Economic uh, Cooperation and Development, based in Paris, industrialized nations, they are starting to develop something called a HELLO, which is yet another acronym. Basically, it has to do with higher education learning outcomes. And what they're trying to do is develop a sort of cross-national instrument. They don't want to call it a ranking. They would kill me if I called it a ranking. But basically, it's an assessment of how effective universities are at teaching, particularly undergraduates. And they're doing a lot of different tools, but they're, among, they're actually borrowing an American uh, assessment that basically gives undergraduates essay tests and analytical tests when they, when they enter, and they give them to them when they leave, and they basically try and look at value-added, right? Just like that University of California yearbook, except in this case, it's academic value-added. The, uh, the European Union is also starting to create uh, a ranking that will be more of a holistic ranking. So they're trying to not just look at research or reputation, but also look at what's really happening in the campus experience. And I don't know how well these are all going to work out, but I think that it's very promising that people are starting to try and look deeper. And also, it's great that uh, the British ranking by Times Higher Education, they've been criticized for years. Their, their methodology was pretty flawed, you know, very s small sample size, some real questions about where they were sampling and where they're getting the right countries. And uh, last fall, they fired their data firm that they'd had since the beginning. 
they got rid of them, and they bought in Thomson Reuters, you know, a very well-regarded uh, you know, media data conglomerate. And this year, they're going through a very public process with lots of transparency and input. You, know, you can follow their Twitter feed and their Facebook feed, and they'll, they'll tell you at every step of the way. They're going to speak. They're going to gather input. They're, they're, they're waiting for this month for their next step and so forth. And they'll come out with something in the fall, and you know, we'll see how good it is. But I think there are incentives for people to maintain their credibility to try and come up with better and better measures. So I'm going to conclude by just you know, reminding you of the three main trends I've talked about, the academic mobility, this whole quest for world-class universities, the emergence of global college rankings. And I just want to reiterate uh, in the, the time I have left that a lot of the anxieties that we hear about university globalization, both in the United States and we hear these in other countries as well, I think are, are really misplaced. And I think that we see a lot of uh, protectionism, protectionism me measures. Um, I often think of the free, free trade analogy because I, I, I like to think of what's happening now increasingly as free trade in minds. Uh, but at the same time, we have variations on academic protectionism, which might be trying to prevent students from leaving, preventing students from coming in, or almost like a psychological attitude where you may not be actually preventing anybody doing this, but you just worry about it and you wring your hands about it. And I think that's just um, terribly mistaken. I think it's absolutely crucial that we reject all, all academic protectionism in whatever form it takes. And I said before, knowledge is not a finite resource. It can grow. And I think that it's something that you know, can really benefit everybody. Uh, again, it's an opportunity, not a threat. The last thing I want to say, you know, just looking to the future of higher education, uh, is that the whole paradigm that we sometimes look at, we look at things, I think, in the States, particularly through a prism of sort of us versus them. How are we going to do? Are we going to lose our edge? And I think already that's starting to become out of date. You know, we already, I've talked about some of the, the international research collaborations that are going on. Uh, I've talked about some of the partnerships, you know, between universities in different countries that are going on. And, you know, I think it's entirely possible that will continue to grow. You know, it's always dangerous to make predictions. You know, in the 19th century, the Germans were on top. They created the modern research university. Lo and behold, a bunch of Americans went over there. They studied. They stole that model. They borrowed it. They created places like Johns Hopkins and the University of Chicago based on this German research university model. And we became the best. We took the ball. We ran with it. After World War II, we became the world's magnet. And now Germany's universities are not very good. And they're trying to come up with a more competitive model um, to restore the excellence they once had. And they're now looking to the U.S., so you don't know what's going to happen in 150 years. But that caveat aside, you know, I think we could see whole new ways of organizing universities. National borders, I think, will be less relevant than they are now. We could see mergers of universities. We could see the equivalent of multinationals. Uh, a very interesting guy now on the national scene is John Sexton, the president of New York University, who has this notion of what he calls a global network university, where they're creating this Abu Dhabi campus. They would like to go to China and maybe create a, a Shanghai campus, and some others as well, where you could have sort of hubs where you might start in Shanghai and finish in Abu Dhabi, or start in NYU uh, in Washington Square in New York City and finish in, uh, in Shanghai. So all of these possibilities, I think, are floating out there. And you know, some might stick, some might not. You know, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I think it's a very exciting time, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Todd Kerner. Thank you for that very enlightening talk. Um, first of all, I think the first ranking I ever used was the Playboy Party School ranking. <laughs> I think it predates the U.S. News and World Report. Um, 
it seems to me when I saw that bar chart with New Zealand, what struck me was Korea. And I've signed up online to do some secondary and elementary school teaching overseas. And by far, Korea sends me exponentially more invitations to come teach. So it's no surprise. But I'm wondering if there are three factors, there are three factors to me that seem to be affecting the US university system adversely. First and foremost is our sorry state of elementary and secondary school education. Second is a very restrictive immigration policy. And third is laws for this country that restrict what might be considered cutting edge uh, research. And how can we solve these problems and are the domestic universities taking strategies to try and solve these problems? I mean, I think you're probably uh, referring to stem cell research and that sort of thing. You know, it's not my expertise. I mean, yeah, certainly there are people who are upset about um, our, our inability to do certain kinds of research. On the other hand, I mean, again, I'm beyond my expertise here. You know, there, there, if there are countries that are willing to do crazy stuff, uh, I, I think that, that that's also problematic. So I don't think that necessarily complete openness to anything is a hallmark of, of excellence. I, I would also just say that we, we retain, I mean, we're sort of at an inflection point, I think, but we retain, you know, we're very dominant in research. I mean, if you just look at um, citations uh, and, you know, where people want to go and who they want to collaborate with, you know, we're still on top. Although I think, you know, you raise an interesting point about whether there might be some problem areas. Uh, in terms of restrictive, restrictive immigration policies, I mean, absolutely, I think that's a big problem. I mean, one issue I write about in the book is the whole question of H-1B visas. These are temporary visas for talented uh, people with you know, special talents. Um, there's a limit on them, they're vastly oversubscribed, and um, not only do they shut us off to a very valuable talent pool, but they have an indirect effect on students because if people, many students want to come here and I mean, they might want to immigrate, but they might just want to work for a few years. And if you think you're going to have a hard time getting a visa because of the limits, you may go and study in a different country. So I think, that's a, I think that is a real problem. And sure, K-12 education is a, is a big problem. I think it's widely recognized. I mean, in another part of my life, I, I do work on that as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's you know, one, although I think we should not be alarmist about international competition, I do think that you know, we, want, we have every reason, not because we're scared, but because we want to improve our, uh, our well-being as a society to improve human capital. And that means doing a lot uh, to improve K-12 and to improve, you know, I think we ought to be improving the, 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 quant the quantity or the, the, the mass access to, to our universities as well as their quality. What kind of impact socially um, and maybe politically on some of these other countries that have been more historically closed that inviting people from more liberal or more open-minded, normally historically students are more of the vocal, they go out and protest. So um, what impact that has on all of this sharing of ideas and different um, backgrounds to some of these other countries where they're not historically open to that? Sure, that's a great question. And I mean, uh, there's a lot you could say. I, I guess I do write about it in the book, uh, in, in the Middle East in particular. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I say cautiously because, you know, I think you have to approach all these questions with humility. I mean, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, 
you know, this, this new research university in Saudi Arabia, KAUST, well, it's, you know, kind of been created in this very repressive authoritarian society. And a number of places like Stanford and Berkeley that have gotten involved, there have been you know, protests and a lot of concerns. You know, these are places where obviously the role of, of women, of, of gays, of Jews, you know, is, is um, problematic to say, to say the least. Having said that, you know, KAUST, I think you could say, is a little oasis of liberalization um, in the classical sense. You know, women are students there, women are on the faculty there. Um, the first week, I mean, this is kind of an interesting uh, little, little factoid. They opened last fall, and the first week, uh, one of the imams who's on the sort of governing council, religious council for the nation, said it was evil that men and women were in classes together. And uh, King Abdullah fired him, I mean, the same week. Um, and, you know, I've mentioned uh, being in Doha in Qatar. You know, I talked to uh, the president of the Qatar University where men and women still attend separate classes. Now, she's, excuse me, she's a member, uh, she's like on the governing board of this education city, and, you know, she's not going to change her university so easily, but in education city, young women, you know, from, from Qatar, from the region, can go to this co-educational uh, University, I think that's liberalizing. I mean, you know, you go in and there's separate prayer rooms, you know, and all these, you know, you go into Texas A&M and there's the men's prayer room and the women's prayer room. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a meeting of cultures. Uh, but I think that, I mentioned that debate series. Um, that's a debate that would not have happened before. You know, I talked to one of the, the guys from the Medill School of Journalism. They, they're brand new there. Uh, he's a long time kind of a, you know, I mean, if you've ever worked in a newspaper, he's just kind of like the crusty city editor, you know, guy who's worked at a bunch of newspapers, you know, all, all around, um, uh, I think, Michigan. And he's the number two there. And he's saying, you know, I'm going to the daily newspaper um, just sort of to kind of give them some advice. And I'm saying, you know, you don't need to run a photo of the emir on the front page every day. Um, there are some of these habits that are just sort of left over from the days they used to have a censor in the newsroom. I mean, literally kind of clipping the paper. The, some of the American universities, I mean, again, these are small things, but... They have insisted on having, you know, I mean, again, Qatar is not a, you know, it's a, it's a moderate, uh, it, it's not a, a sort of incredibly repressive society, you know, in that part of the world. But they do, for example, have some internet censorship. Well, the American University said we won't go in unless we have a VPN line. So on, the, on those campuses, their internet is completely un, unfiltered. Um, so those are, those are a few examples. I guess my sense is that, uh, I hope I'm not, I don't want to be romantic about this, but I think that the values of American universities, Western universities, free inquiry, um, you know, uh, the whole notion of meritocracy is something that, uh, it's certainly not perfect in this country, but I think we've come a very long way in say 50 or 60 years. And I think that we're now gonna be seeing more and more of that on a global scale, including in the countries you're talking about. We're getting ahead, you know, increasingly, uh, not perfectly, but more than before is gonna be not so much based on who you are, but on based, based on what you know. And I think that represents progress. Ms. Thomas Rodriguez, and I do work at a university, and I have a question about non-science-based education. Um, I've worked in a university for a long time, actually learning to become a career counselor, and I've seen the divide between those who are in the STEM program, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and non. I'm curious, what, uh, on a global level, are, they, are these universities investing money, time, and energy in making sure those people who don't pursue those more lucrative professions or educations are actually going to have a chance in the global economy? Or, or is it just kind of like the redheaded stepchild of <laughs> education, just out there to the side and no one talks about it because there's so many people coming for those science-based, very lucrative type educations that they can afford to just forget about the rest? 
Well, I think it's time for my, my true confession of the evening. Uh, I was a comparative literature major in college, so I have a lot of sympathy for the, this question. Um, you know, there's a couple of ways to answer it. I mean, I'll, I'll just try to be brief. You know, I've talked about this as being a marketplace, and, you know, if there's a lot of, if, if people value the STEM degrees, you know, I kind of think, you know, that's, that's, that's what people are going to come for, and they may not come here to study, you know, Thucydides under, under a tree. Uh, much as I value that, you know, I'm not, that's not a knock on it. It's just, that's how markets are, you know. My, my, you know, my friends who went to law school have different kind of career trajectories than my, my, um, my friends who went to the Peace Corps, perhaps, you know. Um, having said that, I mean, this sort of leads me to something that I, I only touched on briefly in the book, and I'm actually hearing more about it. You know, this always happens. You finish the book and you realize, you know, all the things you should have put in there. Um, <laughs> But the value of the liberal arts is actually something that, uh, in Asia, for example, is increasingly being recognized. There's a wonderful article by, um, I've mentioned him a couple of times, he's a very influential figure in this, uh, in this area, Rick Levin, uh, the president of Yale, has a piece in the new issue of Foreign Affairs, which you can get online, and it's called The Rise of Asian Universities, or some title like that. And he talks about how liberal arts education is really prized in Asia more than, more than it's been before. In other words, going beyond the, the STEM stuff that you're talking about. And I think what it boils down to is, on the one hand, we admire the diligence, the perseverance, you know, all those sort of things that we, we, we tend to attribute to the Asian universities and Asian culture. Um, at the same time, I think when you know, South Korea looks at us, they're kind of saying, what's their secret sauce? What is it that you know, makes the United States a place that, that is so full of innovation? And I think they... I think are beginning to recognize, you know, that an ability to be analytical, to question, to, I mean, it's kind of a cliche of thinking outside the box, but all that stuff is something that we're pretty good at. And so, you, you know, in, in South Korea, there's now a, an English-only liberal arts college has been developed, um, where I think they're trying to inculcate some of those values. And actually, at the elite Chinese universities, although there is this massive test, I mean, you think the SAT is bad, I mean, it's like nothing compared to, I, I forgot the name of it, but in China, there's this exam that sort of determines your life. But at Tsinghua and at Peking University and a few of the really you know, top-notch universities, they're now starting to do applications that are a little bit more like the American ones with you know, essays and interviews. And again, I think that represents a recognition that simply being, you know, having incredible scientific prowess, I mean, clearly that's still valued more than anything else. But I think they're starting to see a bit more than that. Hi, my name is Lois Thompson. A quick observation that sort of reaffirms what you're saying and then a question. When my daughter moved to Wyoming, I was absolutely sure that she would have no possibility of maintaining her fluency in Mandarin that she had worked so hard to develop. And then I was greatly surprised to find out that it actually advantaged her because the research positions that were available to her at the university were being offered by Chinese researchers who valued that Mandarin as well as her English. Oh, that's great. The question for you is that as you've been talking about global universities and global education, other than a passing reference to Peru, you haven't spoken at all about any of the countries south of us, and you haven't spoken about Africa outside the oil countries. So my question is, is this a phenomenon that's affecting Latin America, South America, Central America, Africa south of the Sahara at all, and if so, how? There is a lot going on everywhere. I don't think, I don't think anybody is really untouched by, by what's happening, but clearly it's, you know, it's happening a lot faster in some places than others. I mean, you know, if you look at other kinds of globalization, the kind of stuff that you know, Tom Friedman writes about in The World is Flat, you know, Africa has a lot of problems. Um, I mean, you know, horrific problems. And I think that you know, education, you know, whether it's you know, K-12, you know, I mean, you know, access for, for, for girls to education, higher education, you know, there's... It, yeah, it's not, it's not 
partaking of a lot of this. You know, you could point to some things here and there. Um, you know, online education, you know, various kinds of distance learning projects, you know, perhaps have some potential in Africa. Um, you know, there was this heartbreaking photo uh, a few years ago in the New York Times of students in, in Guinea uh, studying at the airport. I don't know if any of you saw this. It's a bunch of students, they go to the airport because there's power outages constantly, and they want to study. So that's where there's lights on because of the generators. So clearly the desire is there, but you know, for all kinds of reasons, um, there is not any kind of capacity. Now in Latin America, it's more complicated. I mean, there's a well-established university system. You know, I think there are, there are sort of global linkages. I don't think that they tend to be at the elite level, uh, perhaps as, as connected as places in Asia or Western Europe, uh, or the, the Middle East is just beginning because of these satellites. Um, there haven't been really great universities typically in the Middle East. Um, I mean, Israel's Technion, you know, but in the Arab world, there. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, certainly before Western universities were even started, there, there was a lot, a lot going on there. But in, in, in contemporary times, there, there's not a lot. I mean, the one thing I'll, I'll mention that I do get into in a chapter in the book is for-profit education, which of course is, is controversial here. It's controversial globally, but it's a very big phenomenon globally, and it's a big phenomenon in uh, in Latin America, and. One of the reasons is that there are you know, big state universities, in some cases very prestigious places, but it can be misleading because they are, they are free, which you know, sounds very egalitarian, but many of the best universities that are free, you actually have to go to an elite, uh, private, expensive secondary school to get in. So it's sort of egalitarian, but not really. And so what that means is a lot of people who are in the middle class or working class really don't have very much access. Um, and what's happened is, uh, there are a number of for-profit institutions that were already there offering pretty practical degrees and things like you know, nursing, accounting, tourism, the things that people want just to get ahead. And now a lot of American companies like the Apollo Group, which is the parent of the University of Phoenix, or uh, Laureate, which was uh, originally the parent of Sylvan Learning, you know, the very popular tutoring chain, they spun off Sylvan Learning to a different company, and they're now, I think, almost entirely international. So they are buying up for-profits around the world, in, in, in Latin America, in Asia, even in Europe, and they are trying to offer, you know, they're trying to serve really an underserved population. The same is true of Kaplan. We think of Kaplan as, you know, the test prep company that's keeping the Washington Post company afloat, because the newspaper certainly isn't keeping them afloat. Um, but in fact, Kaplan now does much more business in higher education than it does in K-12, uh, and that is, again, expanding globally very quickly. So. I hope that's at least a partial answer. I'm sorry, I've lost the, 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 the person who asked me the question. I think that's maybe a partial answer. There are some things going on. The private sector, I think, is playing a big role in, in Latin America. But yes, yeah, certainly Africa is being left out. I hope that changes. Hi, my name is Marcia Zellers. And you talked a lot about, and of course we traditionally hear a lot about, um, the American educational model being exported to other countries. But we don't really hear very much typically, and nor did you talk about, models from other countries being imported here. And I'm just curious if you think that vis-a-vis -vis your experience looking at international higher education, whether there's anything particularly broken about the model that we have here, although we don't really have one homogeneous model, but, but still. Glee is, Glee is starting in an hour, no, half an hour. I mean, I'll try to be brief. That, that really is a wonderful question. Um, you know, I mean, again, in another part of my life, I'm, I'm doing some work on the whole question of you know, innovation, why, what's wrong with our system, and how could we fix it, and you know, everything from online education to rethinking how courses are organized to the for-profit uh, opportunities. So yeah, I mean, we, we have the virtue of having an incredibly diverse system. 
which is great. You know, we're the land of second chances and third chances and fourth chances, and our university system kind of reflects that. Um, at the same time, you know, we have, you know, we have, yeah, we, well, I won't give a whole discourse on what's wrong with our system, but yeah, we have problems, you know, all the way through the pipeline, you know, from getting in to preparation at K-12 to remediation to getting in. We have a pretty good attempt, we have a pretty good college going rate, but we have a huge fall off. So if you looked, if you did a chart of our college going rate since 1970, it's way up out of high school. But if you looked at attainment of people actually getting degrees, it, it, it hasn't gone up, you know, nearly to that extent. So there's a lot of problems, but I would say though, going back to where you started, and at the, at the level of research universities, we have what everybody wants. I mean, they want to be like us. Um, I don't think that you will see, yeah, I'm sure in individual programs, you know, there'll be programs here and there that we admire, that we, are, we would like to emulate. Um, but I think by and large, you know, like I said, we took the German model and we ran with it. And post-World War II, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, we became a talent magnet. You know, we had a federal infusion of, of research. You know, we had the whole... Sputnik challenge and the idea that we had to um, you know, really pull up our socks. Um, generally speaking, everybody wants to be like us at the research university level. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.